Well, in case you didn't know, notice, 2016 is flying by, and, and um, we finished a, a series of messages on, on the prayer, kind of launched the year. And believe it or not, we're only seven weeks away from Easter. Um, it comes early this year, uh, March 27th. And so um, we're going to kind of do for Easter what we did for Christmas. Um, and that is, if you remember, or you were here with us, um, to bring us into Advent, we, we looked at the first two chapters of Luke. <clears throat> Well, moving to Easter, we're going to fast forward to the last two and a half chapters of Luke to, to bring us to the cross and Good Friday and the, the richness of what Christ did for us. Um, there's, uh, how shall I say this? You, you, you can't reflect on, think about, focus on what Christ did for us at the cross enough. Um, and so in typical fashion with the Christian calendar, we are going to be looking at the um, last chap- two and a half chapters of Luke, beginning with chapter 22, verse 39 and following. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. And I just want to warm, warn you uh, uh, kind of up front. I, I felt this at the end of uh, the first service. <clears throat> it's Valentine's Day, so I know, generally speaking, Valentine's Day is a happy day with hearts and flowers and laughter and love and lipstick and lips and all that stuff that you see. And it, had I realized that the start of this series was going to be on Valentine's Day, I might have started at a different place, but today is a rather serious uh, message in terms of tone. So if it's not full of hearts and, and candies and kisses, um, that's the text we're in. Okay. <laughs> I realize, you know, there, you can't put a smiley face on on portions of the Bible that are, that are filled with a sense of anguish. So I'm just saying that so you'll be prepared and so you can kind of mentally think, wow, I don't hear any hearts and candies in this particular message, all right? Um, because the topic that I want to consider this morning with you it is, is a very important one, and it's a serious one, and that is the need for preparation, preparation in particular for, um, for suffering or I could put it differently, um, preparation for suffering and doing the right thing, or preparation for suffering um, in our obedience no matter what the cost. That, that's, that's really um, what we're going to talk about, is the need for that, of, of, of the preparation. And um, I was struck by this years ago um, when I came across some things that were written by, um, by Richard Wormbrandt. Some of you will be familiar with the name. He is the founder of uh, Voice of the Martyrs. And um, he was, uh, back in the last century, he was a Jewish Christian pastor in Romania under the whole communist regime. He was outspoken about the fact that Christianity and communism are incompatible. And for that, he was thrown into prison a number of times, and he was tortured a number of times. And one of the things that he wrote, because um, he did live through those things, was the importance of this thing of preparation, is making sure you're prepared before everything breaks loose and before you find yourself in a place where you are suffering. And he wrote this. He said, what shall we do about these tortures? Will we be able to bear them? Um, If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men who I know because that is what the communists wish of me, to betray those around me. So if if, if he gives into the torture idea being and gives up the names, then there are going to be 50 or 60 other people that are going to go through the same boat. So he has to stay true. Then he goes on and says, and this is the part that I, I... I would underline or um, highlight. And here comes the great need 
the role of preparation. That is, getting ready ahead of time for what you're going to have to endure. That is, the role of preparation for suffering, which must start now. It is too difficult to prepare yourself uh, for it when the communists have put you in prison. In other words, in his estimation, it's too late at that point. You're not ready. And he probably saw people who buckled under the pressure because they weren't ready. And by the way, the, what's said about preparation, I'm just kind of taking that angle because I think you're going to see how it fits into the text. Um, preparation, what's necessary for preparation for those times is also necessary for perseverance in those times. That is, um, we know from almost every walk of life that the most difficult things um, that we do, some of the most challenging things that humans accomplish, all require preparation, right? Nobody just goes out in the spot of a moment and decides, hey, I'm going to sign up for a marathon and go run tomorrow. That's, it doesn't work that way. And you know it doesn't work that way. Um, you're, you're a complete idiot if you think that you're going to wake up one day and you're going to climb Half Dome without ropes. I, guys who can do that have done it for years and years and years, and they know how to do it. They've prepared themselves, and nobody thinks that they're going to go deep sea diving tomorrow. It's just We just know from life that, that those, those challenging things require preparation, and the same is true in the spiritual life. Now, in one sense, I'm dealing with a tension here, um, a theological tension, call it. I want to tell you that at the end of the day, the one who preserves us um, whether through preparation or without preparation, ultimately is the hand of the Lord. Like, we have to trust that he has us. We have to trust that he's the good shepherd, and, and even at times when we stumble, he still has us. That's what Psalm 121, the Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He'll keep you. Now, now that's where our trust is, that God has me. But because we believe that truth, which is a foundational truth, does not diminish the fact that we also have a personal responsibility to prepare for those times. That we make choices, we make investments in the here and now that will affect later on. And part of that responsibility, part of that responsibility we have is, is, is just to be prepared. And not just for uh, uh, persecution. That's... I, I, I realize there are places around the world where Christians are persecuted for their faith and they give their lives uh, each day. And, and the day may come when that, that, that rolls over in our town. Um, <clears throat> but broader than that, the fact of the matter is that we live in a world, a broken world, a fallen world, where in a moment's notice you can find yourself in, in a time of, of, of great distress and, and great difficulty. Or I'm going to refer to it as a, like a crucible moment or season in life when you just, your world is rocked. And those things, I believe, um, are probably more where we live. Um, finding out, you know, that someone you really, really love just got hit by a car and realizing your life has turned into t- turmoil. You know, I'm pretty sure that the family of the woman who was beaten in the parking lot of our mall that, that family has been turned upside down. There's just, um, you go from things being sunny to being extremely stormy. And that's, that's really kind of the broadly where I want, want to go this morning is to look, look at, at that, preparing for those things. So that when they come, you're able to continue to, to walk um, faithfully, following and trusting in the one who bought you with his own blood. Now, Jesus is the one, I think, who gives us the best example of what that looks like. The text we're going to look at this, this morning is pivotal. 
um, between his earthly ministry and his suffering. It is a pivotal text that, um, that shows us, I believe, um, how to prepare. <clears throat> in this text, beginning in verse 39, if you're open there, um, what you realize is these are the last probably maybe hour, two hours, three hours. We don't know exactly how long because the text doesn't tell us. But this slice of time that's recorded in verses 39 to 46 are the last free moments of Jesus. There is no, he's not in prison. He's not in chains. There are no guards. There's nobody keeping him from doing what he wants. So these are, um, if you will, these are the last hours of breathing free air. And in these last hours of breathing free air, we find how Jesus prepares himself for what's about to unfold. This is, the, this is the text. And he, verse 39, and he refers to Jesus. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. I'm going to pause there and just say, he doesn't say, pray that you not enter into adversity. They're about to enter into adversity. But in that adversity, it, the prayer is not to be tempted to fall or give in or to compromise. It's telling them to prepare themselves. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, most of us know this who have been a part of the church for any number of years, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more, more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. This is the second time he's told them. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, in its parallel, he says, watch, keep your eyes open and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here you have, on the, on the precipice, Jesus is on the precipice of the most challenging thing that any human being, not, rephrase, Jesus is on the precipice of a challenge that is, that is greater by far than any human being has ever experienced. I remember sitting in this room with our men's ministry listening to Dr. Bill Nesbitt, um, who has since passed away, telling us what it was like um, in the moments before landing on Omaha Beach on D-Day. And uh, he was one of those ones who, who stormed the beach with the, you know, all the, the machine gun fire coming down on them. And it, it's, the story itself is like haunting. And it's, it's interesting to compare and think, you know, um, what those men in World War II faced is that anticipation. I mean, I get worked up even just going to the doctor or the dentist. I can't imagine being on a boat knowing that probably, I don't know, 60%, 70% of the guys around you are going to die. You might be one of them, how much anxiety there would be. Um, but to realize, however difficult that was, what Jesus was facing um, on this night, what he's wrestling with, um, far exceeds that by about a billion um, and not just because of the torture or the pain or the crucifixion or the injustice or the blasphemy, um, but the, the, the realization that God is going to um, place the whole weight of sin of all of his people on one person. That's, that's a whole lot of debt to pay. Um, and not just that he would bear sin, but Paul tells us that he who knew no sin became sin. 
that he became the object of God's hatred, and in the moment he took upon himself in a rather condensed and potent full way the wrath of God in our place. That would scare anybody to death if you take the time really to mentally think about that, uh, what Jesus is facing. And it's just hours from this particular story that I just read or this garden experience where Jesus is, is praying. And what is he doing with his free time, if you will, his free air? Jesus is wrestling in prayer, preparing himself for this monumental, um, unimaginable challenge of bearing our sin to the cross. But I want you to notice he is, he is preparing himself. And I, I just offer to you um, four observations as to how he prepared himself, one from context and three from the text itself, as examples to follow <clears throat> for us <clears throat> in our day. One of those things taken from the context is that if we're going to be prepared for the crucible, whatever that is, the difficulty it requires of all of us like a keen awareness that you're in a fight. When Jesus said, watch, Matthew's parallel, he's saying, keep your eyes open, be vigilant, stay frosty, because um, the enemy's here. And as I said, the context makes that clear. Um, earlier in this chapter, we're told that, that Satan entered into Judas, one of the twelve, to betray Jesus. And that is, Satan entered in to continue what Judas already in his evil heart prepared or intended to do. And then after this, we read about the dark and evil hour. That is what we're to read in this is, is bigger than just a political um, persecution on Jesus. This is, these are forces that Paul would call um, principalities and powers that work through these political entities, bringing everything against the Son of God. So this is, these are the powers of evil that are at work. And in order for us to to be prepared, you have to recognize at all times that you really are, we really are at, in a fight, at war. Now, Jesus sees it. He's, he's perfectly aware of what's going to happen. The disciples, they seem aloof, um, disinterested, ignorant, heads in the sand, um, because they're, they're, they're asleep. They're not praying. In fact, what they're talking about, passage immediately preceding, is, hey, I wonder who's going to be the greatest. They're completely tuned out to what's going on. They are not vigilant. They are not frosty in terms of having their eyes open. And yet, Jesus told them over and over again, explicitly, as they made their way to Jerusalem for him to die, he said repeatedly and explicitly, he said, listen, we're going to Jerusalem where I'll be handed over to the chief priests and elders where I will, be, I will suffer, I will be beaten, and I will die. That's pretty clear. Now, they heard those words, but they didn't hear those words. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't have their eyes open. They weren't aware that they were in the middle of a fight, a cosmic war that was happening, which is even more surprising in the fact that they just got done taking the Lord's Supper. You know, they just got done taking Passover with Jesus, in which Jesus did something unprecedented. He took what used to symbolize God's redemption in Egypt, you know, the Passover lamb and so forth, and he reorients this whole thing towards himself. And he says, takes these elements which, which the Jewish people would point, take in memory of what happened in their past, and now he says, listen, this is my body and this is my blood, but his true redemption is found in me. Both of which are, are symbols of death. He's talking about his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sin. So, like, death shrouds this entire context. But the disciples, they don't even know. Completely aloof, completely um, 
outside the game. You ever, ever watch little, little guys play? Uh, it just reminds me a little bit of watching um, farm baseball. You know, there are, there are a few baseball players at that age group who, you know, you can tell they're into the game. They know who the good, good batter is, and so, you know, back up, you know, get them, and who the horrible batters are, and they all move forward, you know. And, um, and some of them know, hey, okay, we've got two guys on first and second, so the play's going to make third. And they're, they're engaged in the game. They're, they know what's happening. But then, almost on every team, there's, there's one kid, never my kid, in right field sitting in the grass. Looking down, and like the game's going on, you got people on first and second picking dandelions, you know? And Murphy's Law would tell you that no matter, of any place in the field where there's going to be a pop fly, it's going to be right to the kid who's sitting on the grass playing with dandelions, and sure enough, pop, you know, everybody in the stands is screaming, the ball's coming. Meanwhile, love me, love me not, loves me, loves me not, completely clueless. My eldest son would hate me if I told you it was him, so I won't. <laughs> that was a long time ago. But that just, that just strikes me as like, Jesus is like, this is super serious. Like, there are things in play here that are, I see what's going on. And you guys, you guys are picking dandelions. And, and, and I can't help but maybe wonder a little bit if, if we easily fall into that as well. Forces are in play. Things are moving. Um, what's going on in the world around us is, is, is you can look at it through two lenses. Um, we can look at it through the lens of God's sovereignty and know that he's in control, which is a true lens to look through. We can also look at it through a different lens and see that the dragon is on the move, that we're wrestling against principalities and powers that are at work and things happening, and we are, as Christians, at war. And when you became a follower of Jesus, you painted a target on your chest, which means you were going to be attacked. And to know that, that, that there's, there, 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 is, there are forces at work that wants to destroy, deceive, and seduce my soul, the soul of my wife, my children, you. And if, if that is not acknowledged or seen or understood, then we're simply sitting in the field playing dandelions. And that is not how to be prepared. So, Brothers and sisters, it's like as Jesus entered that day, have your eyes open to what's going on around you, and more is happening than can be seen with the physical eyes. Two, this comes from the text. You'll notice um, that Jesus, in this moment, is doing what he habitually did. In preparation for this, his arrest, his imprisonment, his trial, his crucifixion, um, he, of course, in this context, prays. And just to read part of it here, um, since I already read it, I'll just read verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. Just, I don't know if you ever pause to look at the, the little phrase there I have um, in italics, that he came out of Passover and went, as was his custom. A custom is something you do repeatedly. It is a pattern. It is a habit of life. And one of the things the Gospel of Luke brings out from chapter 1 all the way through is Jesus habitually um, withdrew himself to spend time with God, to spend time with his Father. So this was, this, is the, this was the pattern of his life. And I believe that pattern of communion 
of worship, which includes prayer and perhaps Jesus meditated upon Scripture um, in communion with his Father because he was, though God, human like us, that that worship was, or communion with God is where he found his strength. And that has, has always been the, the truth. And, and um, we might ask the question, why, why, why is communion with God so important when your life is heading towards um, a, a dark challenge? <clears throat> In one sense, Jesus spent time with God because he loved him. You spend time with who you love. And, um, and so he communes simply out of uh, love for his father, out of his love for God. I mean, he's the second member of the Trinity. They spend eternity together, so they, he loves God. Um, on another level, um, communion with God is where God's people have found their strength over and over and over again. And, and you look at the biblical characters who... Um, who faced tremendous challenges uh, in the Bible, and you realize these men had this constant connection with God, and that's where they found their strength. Like King David, for example, um, when he was facing his oncoming crucible of, of uh, Psalm 3, this is what he said. He said, Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Like he's acknowledging the enemy. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And many are saying of my soul that there's no salvation for him in God. That's what they're saying about me. I can't be saved. And then he switches. And this is, this is his worship. But you, and you know this because there was a song written back in the 70s or 80s. But you, oh Lord, are a shield about me. And my, my glory and the, the lifter of my head. The one who gives me hope and the one who gives me strength. There is something about communion with God where we, once again, I think of it like just opening the dark drapes and looking out of us a really clear window and seeing the majesty of the mountains is, is part of what communion does is it opens the, the dark curtains of our hearts to once again see that God is our shield and God is our refuge and God is our strength and he promises to always um, be with us to the very end. And, and what that does is it strengthens you. That's, that's Christian, it, there's all of the... Um, I was going to say, no, I am going to say it. It's, you know, there's this part of us that thinks, man, if, if I just, if I muscle through this, I can do this. Just muscle up and, you know, psych myself out. And give myself the peck talk. Become my own coach and tell myself, you can do it. That is not the way uh, Christian people are to prepare. It's like, no, I am going to focus my energies and my head upon the one who called all the stars into existence, who brings them out by host, by their number, calling them all by name, um, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. That's where my power comes from, from him. That's worship, and it's, it's, it's to be habitual. It's and I, I'm going to say this not intending to create guilt, but it, it has to happen more than once a week. It's like breathing. You, you breathe to live. We worship. We commune with God because that is life, and that's where our strength is found. So I encourage you. I exhort you. Uh, just if you're not in the habit, then learn. It's one of the most. It is the lifeline. It's what it means to abide, right? Um, can't do anything apart from that constant connection and communion with God. That's the second thing. You notice he's been preparing. Third, a conviction of personal dependence upon God. That is the reverse way of saying is know that you need him. Know that you can't do it without him. 
That dependence is seen in the fact, very fact that Jesus is, is moved to pray. You pray, why? Because you don't have. You pray, why? Because you need. You pray, why? Because you feel desperate. You pray, why? Because you know that, um, that if, it's, if it weren't for God's strength and power, you wouldn't be able to do it. So Jesus pours out his heart here in agony, strengthening, or asking God to, to help him. Now, here we're part of the, the mystery, if you will, of, of who Jesus is, right? In one sense, you know, the orthodox belief about Jesus is that he is one person. It consists of two natures that are kept complete and full. That he is fully God and fully man. In this particular text, um, we see his humanity come screaming out. And it would seem to me that Jesus journeyed his life much like we have to journey ours as a human. Um, That he somehow... Um, laid aside the use of his divine prerogatives and had to depend upon God the same way we do. Recognize that he was born in weakness. He wasn't born in sin. By weakness, I don't mean sin. But he was born in a body that could be killed, could suffer. It had emotional um, limits. I mean, in Matthew's version, Jesus says, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. Like, I'm stretched to the breaking point. That's his humanity screaming. I am, I am so overwhelmed. Do you ever think you'd hear Jesus say, I'm so overwhelmed to the point of death? And, and that, that's what moves him to pray. He's, you get the sense he's like kind of hanging on to the edge of his rope, to use metaphor. Which is why he's, he's, he says that, and, and, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And part of the agony is this internal struggle. And and no matter how you describe it, you realize within Jesus, there is this internal struggle that is not sinful. That there's a piece of him, there's a piece of him that wants out. There's a piece of him that wants this cup of suffering, this cup of torment, this cup of wrath to to be taken away. So that's part of his prayer, if it's possible. Like, I don't want to drink this. That's, that's what he's saying. There's a piece of me that doesn't want to do this. But based upon everything else Jesus said, he knows that's exactly what he has to do because that's the will of the Father. So you sense there's this conflict within him that is not sinful, but it's human. I, this is the will of the Lord that I lay down my life for the sheep and I, I, I place myself underneath the laser beam of God's wrath. But Part of me just wants to not do that. Yeah, That is so true to much of our experience, isn't it? You know, you come to these crossroads in your life, and, and there's a piece of you that wants to go this way, the easy road. Um, take the shortcut, avoid the cup, avoid the suffering, avoid the hardship, avoid being misunderstood. But then in the back of your mind, you know deep down, but I know that that's not God's will for my life. I mean, at that, 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 those crossroads, I'm telling you, that is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. And you can't tell me there's not a single person in here who hasn't been at a place where you know you, your, your, your desire is to go one way, and yet you know that you should go another you want to go one way, but you know God's will is to go in another. What do you do in that circumstance? You know? Unfortunately, a lot of people go with what they will, not the Father's will. They reverse the prayer. Um, not your will, but my will be done. 
Because when things get tough, that's when people pull the ripcord and they, they eject, even though they know God's will is different. How, how do you, when you're in that critical moment, how do you find the courage and the strength to say, I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do and submit to his will in my life? Well, Jesus is doing it by agonizing in prayer. And because um, you know what? After this little segment, you don't see Jesus in conflict anymore. Um, and during his trial, during his, his suffering, and even on the cross, you see a man who is completely non-conflicted. In other words, he has worked through it, and now he is resolute and he's committed to going to the cross on our behalf. All because he prepared. That's why this text is so pivotal. It's like, it's this, it's this time in the garden of Gethsemane. It's this time where he's breathing free air, where he is aware of what's going on. He's communing with the Father as he has done before, and he's, he's, he's agonizing in prayer, and, and God answers him. You can see that. He sends an angel, not to deliver him or take the cup away, but just simply to strengthen him and to basically say, Father to Son, listen, you got this, and here's some encouragement to you. Conviction about personal dependence. You have to know that you need him. If you don't, you're going to end up being like the disciples, and you're not going to know that you need him. You're not going to know what's going on, and therefore you're, you're going to be prayerless. You're going to be asleep, and you're going to be picking dandelions out in the field. And last, and if these first three are a reality in your life, that is, you know what's going on, you see evil for what it is, um, that you do have a habitual pattern of communing with God by way of prayer and meditation upon his, his word, and you do know that you're desperate, you know that you have a need for him to strengthen you to do the right thing, but it's naturally going to pour itself out in this kind of persistent and this um, earnest kind of praying that we see with Jesus, where um, Luke describes him as praying with sweat like drops of blood, which is probably a way of saying he prayed with blood, sweat, and tears. Like he was wrestling at the deepest levels with what he had to do. But out of this preparation, as I said, Jesus comes out the other side resolved. And he drinks that cup. He goes to the cross on our behalf. He rises from the dead and gains the victory because he was faithful. And he was faithful at least in part because his heart and life were prepared. So here we are, 21st century, all of us in our own little walks of life and uh, facing our different challenges, our different crucibles. And, and I, I believe right here is just a, a simple, and it's not rocket science, it's a simple way to just continue to prepare yourself for when that does come or to help you persevere if it's already here. So that in the middle of that, whatever you want to call it, mess, um, you can take step after step doing the will of the Lord rather than what our humanity naturally wants to do, which is avoid it. Avoid the suffering, avoid the hardship, and to be faithful um, to Christ. I know that we're saved by grace alone. We're saved by the gospel of grace, but that doesn't mean that we have the license or freedom to walk down the wide and broad road that leads to destruction. But the gospel of grace gives us the courage and the assurance of victory on the other side that enables us to walk the narrow path of following by grace um, in obedience and submission um, 
the voice of our king. And, and that's, that's, that's where we all should be walking. And these are, if you will, the example. This is the example that Jesus has laid down for us, knowing, again, that at the end of the road, um, not only will Jesus pr- preserve you as our, your shepherd, but there will be victory at the end of the, of the road. And it's in that great hope that we walk forward. Thank you, Paul. I love you, brother. Um, and this actually leads us right into communion because, you know, Jesus said, you know, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He drank it. So we don't have to. So when you hold the cup and, and, uh, and, and the bread in your, in your hands, just, just remember, you know, the, we, you drink this, but you drink it because he drank it for you. And you're mindful of the fact that he took it all um, he took it all away, all of the failure and all of the sin, um, because he is the only perfect, righteous, faithful king and shepherd for us. So when you hold those things in your, in your hand, remember what he did, but also remember how he prepared for what he did. And, and maybe if you're at one of those crossroads this morning, um, you need to just pour out your heart to the Lord. If you're, um, if you're a believer, even if you don't normally attend this church, if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to come to the table. If you're not, we'd simply and kindly ask you to refrain as this is, uh, this is for the disciples of Jesus who trust in his blood um, for the salvation of sins. There is gluten-free bread in the center. So if you have gluten issues, please just come down the center. And um, I think that is about it. Come take it when you're ready. And um, let's commune with the Lord. If I could have those serving, come forward as I, as I pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for making the way for us. We just simply ask in these moments where we take this um, symbol of the body of Christ into our mouths and, and remember what he did in offering his flesh for us. And, and as we take the, the juice into our, our mouths, may we remember that he poured out his life and faithfulness to you and in love for us and um, enable us just to know Father you have us you love us and um, and that you're good and we pray this in Christ's name Amen